Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Hi, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Big thanks to all of you who've been sharing this show with your friends and colleagues via social sites or wherever. That really helps. And the positive feedback I've been getting is absolutely amazing and continues to make my day. Thanks heaps for that. Get in touch with me via make at designermakerrevolution.com. Please don't forget to subscribe. On with the show. Today, my guest is Linda Fredheim. Hello. Linda. Yes. It's Adrian here. Hi, Adrian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. You ready to do this? Can you hear me okay on this? I can hear you really well. Okay. Well, we'll just leave it where it is then. Have you had a good morning? So far, so good, yes. <laughs> That's good. Did you watch the rugby last night? No, I don't watch rugby. Uh, neither do I normally. I don't even understand the rules in rugby. It's weird, but it was the semi-final of the World Cup between New Zealand and England. I have heard it's going on, but I've um, <laughs> no. No. I've got a very small hard drive in my head and I can't worry about too many things. Gosh, that's a good way of looking at the world. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution, Linda. Well, thank you for calling me. It's an absolute pleasure. If you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer them? Well, it sort of depends on the party to some extent. If I'm a physio party, I normally say I'm a physio, but um, yeah, probably I would say I make things out of wood. Have you ever felt that you're a revolutionary? No, not really. I just I'd get on with it. You are a revolutionary now because you're on the Designer Maker Revolution. Well, obviously. But up until this point, I thought, no. Uh, you've been a woodworker and educator for almost 30 years, and listeners may have seen you on the cover of Australian Wood Review. You are a physiotherapist, and you've run a parallel practice, physio and furniture making. How is that as an experience? Uh, it suits me really well. In an actual fact, um, it's really good for me. I, it's lots of practical crossover because I work in a specialist area, which is um, rehabilitating people from hand injuries. You're joking so me. Lots, no, that's true. So I get lots of practical crossover. So when I'm working with people who've had their injuries with woodworking machinery or they're trying to get them back to work, I've got a really clear idea of what they need to do and can really help them with their rehabilitation. And the other great thing is that in my job, I get to make a lot of stuff. We make splints out of uh, low-temperature thermoplastics and sewing and a lot of problem-solving. So it's sort of it's, going to work is, is great for me because I get to use all the skills I already have at home. But separate to that, when I'm at work, my physio job, I'm just concentrating on that job so I don't think about my practice at home. And when I'm at home, I don't think about my practice work. So if I've got really big projects on, sometimes it's lovely just to go to work, physio work, 
to have a bit of a rest from all the thinking and the problem solving I'm doing in the studio. The fact that, did you get into woodworking from the physio? No, um, I bought a little house in the last century, 1986, and I needed a lot of renovation done to it. And um, I couldn't get tradespeople to do things the way I wanted it done because I come from a family where we're very particular that things have to be done correctly and right and perfectly. So I started going to woodwork courses and sort of got interested in woodwork from there. Do you think um, that having a family that needs or requires perfection has been a benefit? Like, is that is that a starting point for you? Uh, uh, starting, it's um, one of the things to be perfect is does set yourself a pretty hard job. Over the years, I'm pretty happy with 95% right now. I can sort of look at that. But, um, yeah, my parents just did everything right. It was just sort of, you wouldn't do a bodgy job, you just do it properly. It's wonderful to have a work ethic like that. Some, you know, aim high. Yeah, I try and get it perfect. And I think when I get, when I make a perfect piece of furniture or a perfect object, I'll just retire because really it's all down to after that moment. <laughs> it's not possible. You know that. Like... It's the only, yeah, it's the, it's the thing that keeps me going. Maybe yeah. one day I'll get it 99.5. There's a saying, perfection is the enemy of good. How does that yes, strike probably. you? That's probably true. A lot of people who would consider themselves perfectionists would have a situation where the perfectionism just make it kind of gets in the way. It makes them stop doing what it is they really enjoy doing. Because do you find that for yourself or are you just driven to? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a goal. You know, it's like when I'm bushwalking, I want to get to the top of the mountain, but mm. sometimes I get to the last bit and there's just no way I'm going to step over that gap and, you know, jump down that thing and jump across that ledge. So I just have to stop there. So I've got most of the way. So it's a, it's a goal. I'm not stressed if I don't get there, but I try and do it as well as I can. Yeah, wow. That's a pretty balanced approach. It doesn't sound well, like... Well, it, it seems to work for me. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't sound like you're being stuck in the notion of perfectionism. It sounds like you can, you know, strive for it. Uh, but yeah, if, yeah. If I don't get there, I don't get there. But it's what I aim for. I had a chat to a glassblower, Nick Mount, not so long ago, and his family motto is "Aim low and win." Flies oh. directly in the face of this notion of perfectionism, doesn't it? I don't know if you know of Nick Mount, but he would be right up there in Australian art glass and, you know, in the world as well. He's he's really, yeah. really, really good at what he does. His work is superb. And as a glass blower, I don't know if you know much about glass blowing, but to be able to blow a piece of glass and, you know, you, you, you have to blow 100 bottles or something like that, he would be able to do that and get everyone within the same dimension pretty much. Wow. Yet his personal philosophy is aim low and win. How cool! Well, yeah, how cool is that? But I wonder if his low is actually as low as everybody else's low. <laughs> I actually think it's much more nuanced than that. He unpacked it pretty well. The way he unpacked, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. He says, if you aim for the top of the mountain, say you're shooting an arrow, you aim for the top of the mountain, you shoot your arrow, goes halfway. You'll spend the next couple of weeks looking for that arrow. You'll never find it. If you shoot that arrow 100 yards in front of it, in front of you, you can go and pick up that arrow and have another shot and have another shot and have another shot. You get to the 
top of the mountain with your arrow, everyone's happy. Yeah. No, I think that that's probably a material thing in that I could never be a ceramicist because I couldn't face the thought of making all those pots, putting them in the kiln, you know, carefully monitoring it, you know, yeah, yeah, and then opening up and discover that things had cracked or stuck together. It just broke my heart that the thing with woodwork is that I make a lot of mistakes, but over the years, I haven't got any better, but I've got a lot better at fixing my mistakes. And I can pretty well resurrect anything. So I can keep pushing, I think. So perhaps I don't need to aim quite so low because mm. there's always a way of solving a problem or an error. Yeah. One of the things with learning craft is not not making mistakes. There's double negative in there. Sorry about that. But how to fix them. And yeah. I think, and not getting tied up, in your soul about it either. It's not like, oh, I've made a mistake. How bad am I as a human being? It's just, oh, I've made yeah, a mistake I, again. I make a mistake. I go, oh, shit, how am I going to fix that? And usually I look at it for half an hour and sort of have a bit of a, you know, beat myself up a little bit and then I just walk away from it. And then overnight the answer will come to me and I'll just get up the next morning and go mm. back out to it and go, oh, yeah, I know what to do now. I'll just do this and that and I'll recut this piece mm. and I'll make the whole thing tiny bit smaller. Problem solved. Yeah. Or I'll just throw that piece away, that component, and yeah. make a new one. Yeah. Don't try and fix your mistake straight away. Just think about it a little bit, and yeah. you should come up with a good answer. So you started work from a renovation of a house. Were, were you always kind of making things when you are small, young? Yeah. Yeah. I um, used to do a lot of sewing and knitting and craft work, that yeah. sort of thing. I didn't do much woodwork because we didn't really have a lot of woodwork equipment at home, but my brother used to make model boats and balsa wood things. So I've made a little bit of stuff out of wood, but it's mostly fabric sort of, you know, mm. female pursuits. Do you reckon woodwork is a male pursuit? No, I don't. I don't now. I mean, at my, I went to a girls' school. We didn't have any woodwork equipment there. I noticed that the school now has an excellent woodwork department, you know, 30 years on, whatever it is. So no, I don't think it's a male thing. I, if you're making big stuff, it's handy to be strong, girl, but um, not essential. No, so so I don't think it's really a male thing now. No, but it was. It was, yeah. yeah you wouldn't Australia. get girl carpenters. Were you, were your mum and dad creative? Did they make things as well? Yep, they made everything because we didn't have a lot of money. So when they wanted something, they would generally make it. My father grew up on a farm, mm. so, you know, very practical. And my mother was a fabulous sewer and you know, she would make all our clothes. And one year my sister and I got a tent that they'd made. My dad had welded up the frame and then my mum sewed the fabric for the tent. So that's mm. the sort of presence we got, yeah. Did you grow up in Tasmania? Did you grow up in Tasmania? Tasmania being an island, you'd kind of, I wonder if you'd, if you'd have that um, make do, you know, let's make it as part of the whole ethos of the island. I think there is a bit of that and we are, you know, well, we were more isolated here, but my dad grew up on a very small island, so on a very isolated community. So I think he just always had that thinking that that's how that things yeah. could be done. If you, you know, you could, he would nut out how to solve problems and how to make things and how to work stuff out. And just sort of, you just sort of, I just grew up around that idea of working out how it would be done. My mother used to make our clothes from patterns and then from scraps of material, she would just lay those bits of fabric on our dolls and work out how to make us a matching dress. So, <laughs> how marvelous but, is that? I know. So, she obviously, 
think looking, I just think that she was amazing. Well, she is amazing. Mm. Looking back now, I can see that she would have had the pattern that she cut our dress out of. So she knew the basic shape it had to be, mm. and then she just you know used that as a template. I um, would struggle with the time if I was going to do that with my children now. Not that they're that young, like they're teenagers, so they wouldn't be that interested in it. Yeah, my my mother sort of didn't work. She helped my dad in his small business, so she pops had a little bit more time than people do today. But you know, nowadays clothes are so cheap because yeah. they're all made by, unfortunately, made overseas in, in poorer countries. But you know, when I grew up, they weren't cheap. So actually, making clothes was a good way of saving money and making the wages go further. She really did work at home. What, what was your dad's business? Oh, he was a plumber. So he had a business, employed a few people, yeah, doing plumbing. Yeah, like hands-on. Yeah, hands-on. And how did you get to physio? I'm assuming you went and did physio straight from high school. Yep. So straight from high school, I went to Melbourne to study physio there. Yeah. I'd sort of been helping a little boy with cerebral palsy when I was at high school and thought that was really cool that you could use exercise to to make a difference to someone's life. Yeah. Um, so that's how I got into physio. Did you have fun with physio? Did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I do. I do love my job. Yeah, it was. it's a really great profession. It's a bit like design, really. I always think design is about making people's lives better. That's a quote from Marcus Fares. And mm. I think physio is a bit the same. It's about trying to make people's lives better by helping them with movement, exercise, that sort of thing. Yeah. Open them recover from injury. What sort of things could craftspeople do to just help their bodies along the way and not get injured in the first place? We're not not so much talking about accidents here because they're kind of freaks. I think um yeah. So I would the top tips that I'd give all my patients are make sure you do a lot of stretching. So if you're doing any sort of job where you're always in one position, bending forward and gripping stuff, make sure you stretch up. In, in between, stretch out your arm muscles, stretch out your back. Cross training, of course. So don't spend the whole day sanding. Try and you know, vary, vary your tasks and do a little bit of this and then stop doing that and do a little bit of that. A lot of furniture makers that can, can be really focused and they want to just get that, pro, that bit of the project done. But sometimes you're better off just to move around and do something else. Take lots of care with lifting and don't use your hand as a tool. Um, and I remember when I was teaching... Students would always be holding the bits of wood while they're trying to chisel it with the other hand. For God's mm. sake, use a vise yeah. or clamp and use sticks when you're pushing things through machines. Yeah, so that's what I'd suggest. If you do go and niggle on a campaign, do go and see somebody because some of those things can get worse, like tennis elbow, neck issues. So it's often good to get um, checked up straight away. So there's a little, little plug for the physio profession. Oh, absolutely. I've been to physios and had really, really good success. Yeah. Yeah, with back pain. Yeah. yeah, and I was starting to get tennis all by myself once, and mm. I noticed I was getting it every time I was picking up the, the sander, and I thought, what are you doing? You know that's really bad, Linda. Do it that way. And it was just a, a really simple thing to change the way I was picking up the sander would stop me getting a tennis elbow. So. How, how should somebody pick up a sander? Oh, uh, well, I was sort of picking it up with oh, – I've got a root sander, and I was picking it up on this body with my – palm pointing towards the floor using all the five fingers yeah. so I was picking it up in the palm down position and they've got a handle which allows you to pick it up in a thumb up position you know which is yeah. what I should have been doing because it will pick it up with two hands yeah which yeah, takes the weight off that one arm yeah yeah I reckon I've picked up sanders so often exactly the way you said yeah calm down stop doing it stop doing it right grab the handle yeah. 
Thanks for that. I mean, that, grab the handle. That's what it's there for. Mm. Were your parents supportive with anything and everything you wanted to do? Yep, absolutely. They were always supportive of um, what we wanted to do. Yeah, never stopped us really doing anything. But also, um, not just supportive, but promoting independence. So if we wanted to go and do something, for example, they would say, yep, you can go and do basketball if you want to. Not that I did, but you need to, we'll take you there, but you've got to get yourself home. So we had to be really committed to it. So anything we didn't, that we really had to be committed and then they would be supportive. Yeah, I could see how that would work too. Yeah, so, you know, you just had to be keen. Yeah. So we had to find a friend to a friend's father to drive us home or we'd have to catch the bus or we'd have to walk home, all that. So it was sort of a, it was a shared responsibility. Mm. And it actually gives them a bit of time as well, otherwise they're waiting yeah. around. And... No, yeah, exactly. They didn't have that five children. They didn't have time to wait around for people. Yeah. So you've got four brothers and sisters. That's correct. That's a pretty big family, eh, these days? You know what? These days, it didn't seem like a big family then, but... Yeah, most of my friends had, you know, three or four kids in their family, so it seemed probably slightly bigger, but one of my friends, she had six brothers and sisters, so we didn't seem that big at all, really. No. Are are your brothers and sisters creative in any way? Uh, My sister's very creative. She's a a sewer as well. One of my other brothers, he's an engineer and has his own business designing stuff, so yeah, we're all pretty creative, I think. Yeah, in the built environment. Yeah. I reckon designers and makers had struggled with at least some aspects of business and marketing. Was business and marketing something that came easy to you? Well, as I said, my parents had a small business, so I understand the mechanics and logistics of running a small business. The thing I've always struggled with is probably pricing. I probably tend to underestimate the time it will take some to make something and so I often don't get paid as much as I should. Do you think your clients would be okay with a raise in your prices or do you think you'd lose jobs? Look, you, it's one of those things, just often I say to people, oh, this is going to be about this and they go, oh, that's fine. And you think, oh, I should have added 50% to that <laughs> because they're, they're good with it. And I, over the years, I've learned that you better just to say what you think it's going to cost, and if they say, oh, that's too much, but you really want to do the job, then you can go, oh, well, maybe we could, you know, I could reduce this, or you could reduce the price a little bit if you say you might be able to save some money somewhere if you really want to do it, but I don't think it's worth making things that you're not going to get a good return on, because then you just end up hating the job, you end up hating the client, you're working for free, you might as well be doing something else. Yeah, like physio. Yeah, for, for me, that is true. Um, but even, you know, if you work for $10 an hour in the workshop, in the end, there's plenty of jobs you can get in $20 an hour. So yeah. I'm not sure there's, that you should just take those jobs on just to keep um, work ticking over. Would you recommend that people starting out would have that same ethos, price yourself higher? Or do you think if you're uh, starting? It's, it's tricky. Uh, I, I used to say to my students that, you know, it depends how much you want to do this job. Generally, I have found that I have priced myself sometimes a bit lower, thinking, oh, well, I'll make the next batch of these. I'll get a bit faster. But actually, I don't think you get any faster. You just get you just do them better. Mm. And so it would take a long time to get a lot faster and get more profit from the work if you're making production stuff. And as for the one-off things, it, it, they're always very tricky to price, I think. Yeah, really tricky to price. 
I'm no expert there. Yeah, I'm no expert with that. So I'll be the last person to listen to because, as I say, I always tend to under underestimate how long things are going to take. It's very difficult to estimate, even if you've had lots and lots of experience. Yeah. 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 And then there'll be things that just get thrown in you've got no idea about. So, you know, that thing of adding contingencies, I think, is so important. Yeah, contingencies for sure. Would you mm. recommend that people starting out also hold down a day job? I, For me, it's good, and I think it is good to have a separate set of skills to fall back on. Um, I've seen plenty of people who, you know, want to be furniture designers and makers and end up just building kitchens because that's where the money is, and I'd rather, you know, cut my arm off than do that. No, I wouldn't really cut my arm off because I do love my arm. <laughs> from, from the perspective of being a physio, that you'd probably know exactly how and where to do it. Yeah, no, um, don't, 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 do not cut your arm off <laughs> just because someone asks you to do a kitchen. Have you ever done a kitchen? Have you ever made one? Only my own. That's fair enough. No, I've never done a kitchen for anybody, no. If somebody asked you to, would you? Oh, it would depend on what they wanted, but as far as cutting up all that melamine board and screwing it together, actually, I have made two. I made one for my um, the house I rent out, but it was mm. just a single bench. So I haven't really ever done a full kitchen, and um, no, I don't really have the stuff to really do that effectively. There's plenty you of people know, out there be... that do have that stuff, and they do it very yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I've always subbed out the bench tops and things like that anyway. In the two kitchens I did, I got someone else to do all that because I don't have the stuff to do it. Mm. They do a great job. Mm. For a little while there, you were the senior lecturer at the art school in Tasmania. Yes, so I was the um, head of studio head of, of studio. The furniture, the furniture design, yeah. Mm. How did that turn out? Oh, uh, okay. It's, um, you know, it was, was all right. I wouldn't say it was good. I had some really fabulous students along the way, and anyone in education will tell you it's the fabulous students are the only thing that keep you going. But unfortunately, the way our education, higher education is run at the moment, there's way too many students in the university sector who probably shouldn't be there. And they're a lot of work. Yeah. Is the university system itself part of the problem or is the is the university system still running along fine it's just the fact that there's a lot of students coming in that probably should just be out working uh do you do you i think the makeover of the university system in the oh, I think it was the 80s after Dawkins where we tried to get every all the universities amalgamated into these sort of bigger institutions that ran along a particular process in terms of unitization of subjects so that rather than actually working out what students needed to know and then working out how you're going to teach that in a series of subjects and units, we now offer four units per semester and then you try and shoehorn what students need to know into that unit system is a problem to my mind. And in Tasmania, we used to have... We had the Australian School of Fine Furniture as part of the UTAS and Launceston where it was part of architecture. So it was in sort of that band two of HEX. So they had a little bit more time, but it was more expensive for the students. Whereas in Hobart, we taught it as part of the art school. So it was in the lowest, fairly, pretty much the lowest band of HEX. So we just didn't never had enough time to actually teach what students needed to know. Yeah. And HEX is the Higher Education Contribution Scheme, which yeah, is basically how right. students 
end up paying for their courses and they course, pay yeah. yeah just for listeners that are international so te- in in essence we'd be teaching four subjects a semester that had about a, a contact time of about three hours so the students get about 12 hours of contact time uh, sorry that would per be semester oh, per semester there would be it'd be 12 hours a week that's <clears throat> pretty shit isn't it that's Woeful. That's like a day and a half. Yeah. We would expect the students to do more work but to get their projects finished. But if they're unsupervised, then that's not really that useful, is it? Dangerous to boot. Yeah. That, so they, they would be supervised, they'd be semi-supervised in the wood workshops if they're working on their own projects, but they wouldn't have lecturer support or tutor support, mm. you know, in, in a class situation. The University of Tasmania's uh, furniture program has a pretty strong tradition, though, way back into the eighties. Yeah, well, in, it was um, you know fantastic when I was there. We because uh, we had five hours a day, yeah. and we had we were taught we had fifteen hours. Yeah, I don't know, I can't remember now, but we we pretty much had more lecturers, more studio time, and they had a really strong commitment to subjects. So as and when I say that students get four sort of three-hour teaching blocks a semester, only a probably one or two of them might be in a design-related subject. The other two might be in art theory or something else entirely, printmaking or mm. core studies, which is a sort of theoretical subject about art. So mm. they've just sort of reduced the amount of subjects and then reduced the time that you teach that they're being, being taught. Did you want to stay there or did you leave because you were just sick of it or how did that? I sort of, I left because of that time thing. So you either had the choice of not teaching the students, sorry, of only using the allocated hours to work with the students or trying to spend your own time there to actually do more and do it better. And so you get to the point where you go, oh, I can't work for nothing for the rest of my life, so... I'm going to do something else. Were you doing physio at the same time as doing the lecturing? I was. I was only ever technically employed there for 18 hours a week. And so I was still doing my other job, my physio job, but only for like probably a day and a half, something like that. Are you self-employed in that or do you work for somebody? No, I work for somebody else. Yeah, and they're cool with flexible arrangements. I'm sure it has to be flexible to some extent. So, So I have sort of set days I go to work and it's a little bit flexible, but if I've got a big project on, sometimes I'll take a morning off or a day off so I can get on with that project. Yeah. But generally, I just go the two out. And all the physios where I work, there's three physios. There's the head physio and two, me and another girl, and we all work part-time. So when someone's away, I'll do less woodwork and do more physio. Yeah, so you're you're flexible with the work too. Would you go back and be a lecturer no, I don't think so. Um, I think I'm too old now. Really? Yeah. I think you got to. I think it's sort of for you got to to really you know you got to be dynamic in those sort of jobs and be interested in what's happening and yeah I think I don't have the energy for it. Is the program furniture program still going? Is it is it still running? Are there people coming out to, with good skills? Yeah. So down in in Hobart they run a the. They've, they've just all changed again, and I'm not 100% across what's happening, but they don't run a furniture program. They run a mm, studio called 3D Design. Yeah. So students in that area can work at any range of disciplines, really. So I mm-hmm. went down to have a look at what the students were working on the other day, and I think 
you know, there's not really anybody in that studio, I think, making furniture like we would have made furniture when I was there. And there's probably not a whole lot of people around that people can learn skills from. Yeah, so um, some of the technical staff, uh, there are some technical staff there which are really experienced and have, you know, probably do as much teaching as anybody else. But Mm. again, they have less of those as well. I think it's sad, actually, with the universities. I think um, it is really sad, and it, 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 in the general sense of the universities, the whole higher education system is screwed over, I think. Yeah, I really can't say because I haven't been to university for many years now, but the university that I studied in, the Canberra School of Art, was... I love it, fantastic. Yeah, the, the woodwork shop there, it was pumping when I was there in the yeah. early 1990s. Yeah, when I was a student, like in the, uh, yeah, sort of late 80s, early 90s, yeah. most there would be people there till 10 o'clock at night when Absolutely. you were kicked out. There'd be three or four people, you'd, yeah. always, you'd be working or you might just be sitting and talking about stuff. But, you know, nowadays you wouldn't see anybody there at night time. No. In fact, you know, we, we had students who'd try and sleep there because they just, you know... <laughs> Want to get on with it? Yeah, ditto that. Like I've I've been in that workshop at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You you'd get to know the security guards, and yeah. they sort of let you stay. But I mean, yeah. health and safety now it's not really it's not possible. Even if you're in the hand workshop, I suppose if you did cut yourself and you were alone, you could have a problem. But when I was in there, yeah, I mean, there was always other people as well. Always other people, and you're always responsible. Like I would never do anything like. Anything, I would be very careful at night time. So, you know, I'd even think twice about using a chisel after 10 o'clock. If I, you know, after 8 or 9 o'clock, really, because, you know, you just, if there's nobody else there, you would sort of know that that could be a problem. And so you just were more, very, everyone was responsible for their own health and safety. So, what is it about students that aren't staying there till 3 o'clock in the morning or even 10 o'clock at night? Is it just the way the university works or is there something from the students themselves that they're not interested to do that anymore? Oh, or? I, I think a lot of them have got jobs. So, mm. you know, they can't because they'll be working in a bar somewhere or waitressing because it's just such much more expensive now being mm. at uni and just in general sense it's less um, study assistance. So they don't have the time to commit to it really. Do you think the passion for these sorts of exercises, skills, design, handwork, is is that desire to learn those skills much less than it used to be? I think the desire is probably as strong as it ever was, but at UTAS, at least in Hobart, they're not offering the units that we used to have. So if you can't learn it there, you're not really going to be able to do it. No, not at UTAS. What about other places like private schools? Like Yeah, there's not that much that I'm aware of. There's a, there's a guy, a few people who sort of have small private schools or or sessions, say guitar making and green mm. stick furniture. I've seen those available. Mm. We do. They still are. I think they've just restarted the design course in London at UTAS up there. Where they're doing a design degree. It's different to what the Australian School of Fine Furniture used to teach. Mm. as I understand it. But there is some teaching happening up north again, I think. Yeah. Up north. We've got a line in the middle of Tasmania. <laughs> About an hour and a half drive. 
two. Two. Uh, <laughs> do you know, I taught at the Australian School of Fine Furniture uh, many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago. When it was at UTAS or when it was in Time Street? No, when it wasn't at UTAS. So the, yeah. the head of workshop was David up, Phil Brown at that. The yeah. head of the school yeah, was, was David up, Phil Brown at that stage. Yeah, he was pretty great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we had an old FB Holden and we drove it yeah. from Launceston to Hobart and as we were driving over down down that road, every time we went past a truck, the windscreen wipers would fall off and it was snowing like as we drove <laughs> so every time. And we had like our our son Lou was like ten months old. Every time a truck went past we had to pull over and get out of the car. You need a better car. <laughs> But it was so cool. It was an FB Holden. How, yeah, how much no. better can you get? Yeah, well, you need to gaffer tape those windscreen wipers on. Oh, man. Have you, like, I don't know if you've ever driven an FB Holden, but the, the windscreen no. is, is super, super curved, and the windscreen right. wipers really struggle getting back around the curve. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. We were the coolest yep. couple with a 10-year-old son in the back seat driving through the snow. Happy times. Yeah, I think a school like that. At that stage, the Australian School of Fine Furniture was was funded through somewhere in Launceston. I don't know how they got the funding. I think through the timber industry, perhaps. Yeah, they they had some seed funding for three years, I think, you know, which is always drives me nuts when people get masses of funding for three years. And then then it just closes, yeah. Yeah, they're supposed to be you're to give people seed funding for ten years and give them half the amount of money. Mm. But um yeah, that funding dried up and then they um, had an inquiry into it, I think, and then the University of Tasmania took it over. But it didn't their teaching sort of really didn't fit their model of how they deliver education. So No, nah, um, it was completely struggled a, a bit. Yeah. It, yeah. Much more of a private institution. Yeah. Type of yeah, I mean, it was that thing I was talking about earlier where you work out what you want students to know yeah. and then you work out how you're going to teach it yeah. rather than actually working out how can we shoehorn the information mm. into these four units every semester. I wonder if there's an opening a business opportunity somehow to get something like that up and running. If there's a desire for people to learn these skills and there isn't a place to go and learn them here in Australia as a full-time exercise yeah. as opposed to just a part-time drop-in once a week. Yeah. I, I, well, I think... There's Midigong, of course. We shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, yeah. forget about no, Sturt School Forward. I was just going to say, I think Sturt still appear to be doing a great job. Yeah. And I, I think to some extent, um, 20, oh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, everyone decides they're going to have a design school and teach furniture. And then you've actually got too many places doing it poorly, we would be better just to have one or two schools doing it well. The schools that did do it, whether they did it poorly or not, I don't really, I can't say, but they've all seemed to go towards a design format as opposed to a craft format. That's because design is cheaper to teach than craft. And that's a really clear economic formula. I mean, if you have in law, for instance, you've got one lecturer per per 200 students, but let's just use that as an assumption. Whereas in a craft-based studio, you would have one lecturer per 10 students. Yeah, 10 to 15. 10 to 15. And 
if your lecturer costs ninety thousand dollars a year or thereabouts, it's a pretty clear formula that you know your your law school is way cheaper. Yeah. Than your art school. If I had a class of fifteen when I was teaching, I would consider that to be big. But the powers above me would be saying you need to have thirty students to make your unit viable. So if you couldn't find thirty students who wanted to do wood skills then they'd say, well, we're not going to offer it next semester because you haven't got 30 students. But can you imagine trying to teach 30 I mean, it would be a poor. It would be poor for the yeah. student. They wouldn't get anywhere yeah. near the one-on-one that is required for yeah. a skill-based, hand-skill-based yeah. so, exercise. Yeah. Yes, it's, in, it's entirely, um, it's all economics. So to say that I was told, you, students, I need to get 30 students to make a unit viable. They, they would often let me teach it if I got 15. But that would often be a struggle. And if students don't enrol often to the last minute because they don't know what's going to be happening with their Mm. work and what other subjects Mm. are going to be offered. And so the cutoff day, you might only have 10 students enrolled and they cancel your unit. Mm. And then you'd get 10 students wanting to enrol in the last three days, but it's already been cancelled. So Mm. there'd be sort of all these sort of admin things that would happen that would just make it very difficult. Sad. Sad. But well done, Metagon, and keep going. Yeah. Absolutely. Been watching your work on Instagram looks great. It does. I wanted to speak. I want to and plan to speak to some people who are in Mittagong, um, students as well as the staff there. So look out, Mittagong. I'm coming. Oh, good. Well, yeah, they look like they do a great job. Yeah. I've been looking, been watching the works getting finished, and they, as I say, they look pretty good. Yeah, well, they're coming up to the end of the year too. Yeah. They'll be busy as. Were you nervous when you stepped out of art school and had to start your own business? No, not really. I'm probably overconfident. (laughs) Did you already have clients? Did you have work to do? Um, No, I didn't. But we were sort of, my partner and I had found a place that we were going to build a workshop on. So our first sort of job was to build the workshop. Behind it, we bought a house which had space for a workshop behind it. So our first job was building the workshop. So I didn't really have time to really make very much, but I had done a few projects at art school that sort of became semi-production pieces. So I was still um, making them a little bit. So I just assumed it would all go well. Yeah. You know, naive. Yeah. Is your work commission-based or is it exhibition-based or production-based? Look, I don't do a lot of commission because you tend to end up with a piece that neither of you are happy with, both you and the client. But mm. I do a lot of sort of exhibition work. So I do some commi- I do probably do fifty percent is exhibition and fifty percent is commission. Mm. So I'm a bit a bit fussy with the commission. I sort of tend to take some things on or other things. I just say no, I don't have time for that, or I won't be able to get to that for a couple of years. And usually I'll go and find somebody else. Yeah, that's fair. But if they really want you to do it, they'll be around. They'll be around. And sometimes things come up and I go, oh, I really want to work on this piece. So I'm sort of, we'll we'll take those on. Yeah, yeah. Why is it you think that when you finished a commission, some of those clients weren't happy and you weren't happy? I think there's just compromises you make on things. So when I have a sense that I'm going to be given a pretty free hand on it, then I usually take it on. But sometimes you, you get... You do, you do the drawing for someone and then they go, no, I don't want this, I want the drawers like this, I, I want that. And then I feel sometimes they make you make compromises that you're not really happy with, but you're sort of, mm. you're in too far to say, say no. Mm. It depends on the clients, I think, yeah. 
I haven't done commissions for a long time, but most of the commissions that I did do later in that part of my professional life was repeat clients. And yeah. I always felt that I was providing a service and if the client wanted something, they kind of got it. But what they wanted for the most part was a lot of me anyway. Yes. And um, I got more confident doing it, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's it. When you sort of, you do get more confident, you learn when to say you're not going to do something or when something isn't going to work. Yeah, and you get better at choosing your clients. <laughs> choosing your clients. Yeah, yeah, God. What a luxury to have, though, when you're starting out, the ability to choose a client. Oh, it'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I've, you know, done a few projects which I wasn't really happy with at the end just because it sort of veered from where I thought it where I want to go. But after a while, I think you develop that sixth sense of who the people you should, as Bob Blacklow once said, give $50 to and tell them to go away. (laughs) So you don't lose money in the long run. (laughs) So you don't lose money in the long run. (laughs) You give them 50 bucks. We're both winners. Go away. (laughs) God. He might have said 20, but again, that was, you know, in the 80s. You know, there's people that come around and talk a lot and they come back and talk a lot and then they come back and talk a lot and, you know, you've already spent a fair bit of time in just on the cups of coffee and then really you, you sort of work out they actually haven't got the money, they don't really have a spot for this thing, they just want to come around and talk to you. If you're a client out there, be aware yeah. that craftspeople and artists have very, very short time frames in their lives to spend shooting the breeze. Yeah, mm. yeah don't, don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. How much of designing and woodworking is a passion project or is it simply your job? No, it's 100% is passion. If I don't actually get out in the workshops sometime, you know, for a few days, I do get a bit sort of, I don't know, stressed. I just love being out there making things and designing stuff and nodding out problems. So, yeah, I do it because I love to do it. Mm. I don't really do it for the money. Is it possible to articulate why you love it or what you get out um, of the experience? I guess I love seeing the things come together. So I you know, always start when I'm working on a project, even if it's just my own projects, they start off with just a bit of a sketch on the back of an envelope somewhere or a tablecloth or back of a receipt. And then you know, I work up that idea maybe on the computer or work it up on you know, a model um, or work it up just in paper and cardboard model and then have a clear idea in my head of how I think something's going to look and so I just love that bit when you've then you started making it and you've got all the bits together and you put a few clamps on them and all of a sudden you can see your piece start to be a real thing and that's to me that's that's the bit I love the most when my object starts to become a real thing in three dimensions Mm. you can see it for the very first time can't you yeah you sit really for the. You can sit mm. in your head all the time, mm. but you just finally see it, and you can actually touch it and and work out that it is the right height, and you're really happy with how the legs look or whatever it is. You know, when you can walk around it. I'm not very good with that turning objects around in my head, but I love being able to walk around them in real life. If you uh, had a piece in that stage, would and you saw your leg and it just wasn't right for some reason, would you replace it? Yeah. That's why I put together with the, just the yeah, masking tape dry. and clamp yeah. and do very early dry things just to get a feel for it. Would you regularly change things or would you quite often say, no, that's okay, we'll just keep going? Uh, no, I would I regularly change it. Probably 25% of the time I'd change it. I'm, I'm making some wooden handbags at the moment. 
in a whole lot of different shapes because I want to. It's exhibition work. Yeah. And um, mm. I, they're sort of a series, and they're all about the same size but a different um, ge- geometry. And I mm. put the square one together, I don't know, on Thursday or something, and I looked at it and went, oh, it's too big. It's just a bit too big. So thought about it for a while, and I'd sort of gone a bit too far to cut it down, but I thought I could just pair off like about – three mils all the way around to take it from 175 square to about 171. So I did that, took a couple of hours, and now it does look better. Even yeah. such a so small most, amount. Ever such a small, it's just, it didn't, wasn't too much too big, but I just felt it was a bit too big. I would have liked to make it a little bit smaller still, but because I'd already drilled for the handles and the little rubber stoppers on the bottom, if I'd gone too much smaller than the portions of those bits would have gone out of, out of whack. Yeah, so, yeah, I did that all the time. No. Yeah, I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> every piece would every piece would have some modification. And the terrible thing is that I often fail to make a note of that on the drawing. Oh. And then when I can't – I know, I know. It's bad. And then sometimes I've yeah. had to make a second one yeah. and I've got no idea because my brain has just oh. erased that bit of information. Oh, I'm the same. Yeah. But yeah. I try, but it doesn't mm. always happen. No, yeah, that's a, you've got to be very disciplined with documentation. Yeah, that's so true. How is it that you can say, yeah, that's the right proportion, or no, that's not quite right? What is it? What's going on with your yeah, eyes? You just, well, I don't know. I just look at it. There's no sort of mathematical formula. It's just a look thing. Mm. And do you um, reckon? Do you reckon that it's a subjective thing, or do you think there's some objectivity within that looking? I can say that a different I, way if you like. But yeah, no, no. I understand. Exactly, I understand the question. I think there is an objective thing. I think you could get a. Well, I don't know. If you had a room of, if you asked ten different people, they would probably all say a similar answer, you know, 10 people who are used to looking at things and often people who aren't used to looking at things could probably, if you push them, give you that answer. So there must be some proportional rule there. I just don't know what it is. It's not the goal so rule, I, is it? Yeah, some one of those things. I used to say you can't teach people how to design, but you can teach people how to look at things. Yeah, and it's that difference between looking and seeing. So you can see when something's not right or when something is the right proportion. And so I spent, and then you spend a lot of time with students helping them to sort of look at things and then articulate what they liked and didn't like about something. And I think that's how, that's how I used to teach to get people to look and think and then consider if it was smaller or bigger, would it be better? Yeah. I think drawing is a very good exercise Absolutely. in learning to look and in particular life drawing. Yeah. So I'm not the world's best drawer, but I you know I practice and try and get better. Do you still practice now? No, not really. But um if only I had more time. <laughs> so I, I in terms of I don't do a lot of drawing but I enjoy it when I do it yeah. and um yeah. it'd be great to do more drawing. I suppose because I, it's, it's a weak thing for me, I tend to do a lot of models. And when I first started, it was all we used to make a lot of models of everything that mm. we were making, just so you can sort of really think about how you're going to make it. And then as I got better with computer drawing, I tended to go into computer more. But actually, over the last probably five years, I've actually gone back to making scale models. Mm. It's lots of fun. And it's really useful, I think, for working out how you're going to actually make something. That's really incredibly interesting that you've gone yep. away from computer. What what program did you use on the computer? I used to use AutoCAD because yeah. that's sort of, you know how you, the first thing you learn is 
you get better at that. And I've tried some of the programs and I think, oh, I'll click on AutoCAD because I know how to use AutoCAD. Yeah. So I go back yeah. to that. But just, yeah, I've just found, I've, you know, where I can, I tend to make a lot of models now. Yeah. Not always have to do it. but So on the computer, it's, it is a lot quicker to get a design to a stage where you can go and make it as opposed to making a model, I think. Yeah. How much easier is it to see what that object is going to be as a model as opposed to on the computer? I think it's easier to see how it's going to be if I make a a, a model because I can spin it around in my hand and look at it in various directions. And I usually then might even photograph it and I can send that to the client or let them play with a the model. They can sort of see how it's going to work. I just think, it, yeah, it's sort of that tactile thing I think is nice. Yeah, models are beautiful things. They're all in their own right, aren't they? Yeah. Have you ever made one-to-one mock-ups? Oh yeah, I'm doing that at the moment. So I've, I'm working on a off and on. I've been working on a cabinet to house Aboriginal shell necklaces. Mm. So I started off with some draw, computer drawings, and then from there I went to a scale model, a one-to-five scale model, and just sort of worked out how I was going to do the draws. And then I'm actually doing the one-to-one model now. Um, so I can get final approval to make it. Do you make that out of good materials, or is it just really rough? Oh, it's just it's MDF and bits of pine, really. Yeah, it's always struck me that if you're going to make a mock-up, make it out of really pooey materials, because if you make it too good, you don't want to change it. You've kind of got an investment. That yeah, no, mock up as it is. Yeah, it's pretty well. And I bits of MDF. I just I haven't even bought. I just use bits I've got around the workshop. Yeah, that's and I, it. Yeah. Stick them together with some biscuits if they're too small. and Yeah, sticky tape, chewing gum. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I won't make the whole thing, but just make enough of it to make sure it's all going to work and fit. Yeah, like a front and a side or something like that. Yeah, I might just put one leg on it or the legs might just be you know, 2D. I'll make yeah. one full leg for it and then the other legs might just be 2D, 2D yeah. you know, just yeah, template yeah. sort of thing. Do you reckon that clients would find it easier to accept the design of a project if you have definitely models because they can feel it, but also if you've got a one-to-one full-size mock-up, they'd be able to visualise it better. I think the the full-size mock-ups are good for sort of a few details that they might be concerned about, but sometimes it's good not to show people things half-made because they don't really understand where it's going in that half-made stage and can actually sometimes panic and suggest things that, you know, if they just waited till it was finished, they'd see that it was all okay. So, yeah, I think your mock-ups have to be fairly rough. Your models can be quite refined. A nicely refined model gives clients a lot of confidence that you can get that thing done. And I think mock-ups should be pretty rough so they don't sort of see it as the actual object. I just think the issue with clients is mostly a communication issue. It's very difficult for somebody to see something that's in your head. Absolutely. Um, so you've got to get it out of your head and into the real thing, but you can't spend too much time because then you've got the real thing anyway. If the client doesn't yeah. like the real thing, they're not going to invest in it. So right. you've got to communicate in some way, in definitely some ways, what that object is going to look like. And Yeah, I think, yeah, I think those, you must be, you have to, when you're communicating in models or drawings, your drawings and models have to be, nice or they won't have confidence you're going to make it you're going to be able to make it to the level that they're after so either it has to be good or very rough (laughs) (laughs) 
It depends on the stage of the design too, doesn't it? Because yeah. the, the very rough is fine when you're just nutting out an idea and saying, is this sort of what you're thinking, you know? Do we have doors or would you have drawers or, you know, do you want a yeah. big high back on yeah. your chair or not or something? Yeah. Do you make chairs and tables and cabinets or do you just make cabinets or what's um, I mainly make cabinets and boxes, that sort of stuff. I have made some chairs and I have made some tables. I tend not to make big things because I'm not that strong. So I sort of like things that are sort of human-sized. So chairs are interesting and little stools. Yeah, I make a bit of everything, but probably I'd gravitate towards cabinets because I like, I like making drawers and boxes. Yeah, me too. There's something about cabinets, isn't it? Isn't there? Sort of, yeah. You know, you, you open them up, you investigate them, you get into them. And yeah. the moving parts I've always found incredibly yeah. interesting to do work yeah. with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love putting things away, and I, I love the way you're seduced by the idea if you've got a better cabinet, you know, you'll get your living room organised, and then your whole life will be better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inspired to get yeah. my whole life better by organising my living room. That's why there's all those people down to office works buying plastic boxes. Absolutely. That's why yeah. I buy them. I know. Does it make any difference? You just end up with more shit and plastic boxes no, in the No, it, it totally makes a difference, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can put those plastic boxes away. Get yeah. Them, get them away. No, no, they're, they're, they're great. Like in my workshop, I make a lot of small stuff, so I keep all my scraps, and I've got big plastic boxes that are just one box of just blackwood scraps. If they're below a certain yeah. size, you can't rack them. Yeah. So if I'm looking for a tiny bit of blackwood now, it's pretty easy to find it. And they just, because they stack, they just stack yeah. up, they're light, they're perfect. Yeah. Do you collect wood? Do I collect wood as a, as a hobby? Or? No, no, no. As as I'm going, oh, this is an awesome board. I've, I've got to have it and you don't have uh, use for it just yet. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I was a wood collector, but we don't really have a lot of great wood shops anymore in Hobart. We used to have like three or four places you'd go and look at timber and you'd go out to buy a bit of blackwood to make something. You'd come home with three awesome boards of myrtle mm. and you just put them away. But I've got so much wood really now. I'm just trying to use up what I've got. Mm. That's actually the question. Do you have a lot of wood? Yeah. You do have a fair bit of wood, yeah. yeah. Is it nice? Uh, yeah, some of, the, some of those bits are sort of too nice. I just haven't found the right project for them yet, but something will turn up. Yeah. I have been seduced by timber ever since I first discovered it way, way, way back. Yeah. And I do love a bit of fiddleback. <laughs> I'm guilty of loving that too. And I do love ray fleck. Like anything with a ray fleck in it, do I just have really? to have that. Yeah. yeah, I love that silky oak and yeah, oak. Sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, oak. I don't have much oak, but I've got a little bit of silky oak. I've got long, long years. I love the big ray flecks. The small ray flecks I can not have in my life, but the big ones I really love. Oh, okay. There you go. You see, you do like Ray Fleck. I do. It's true. I'm totally guilty of loving Ray Fleck. <laughs> Bring out those medullary rays. Mm. When you make things, do you go to a machine straight away or do you choose hand tools just because you like using hand tools? Or oh, Look, I probably would go, I would use whatever's the easiest and what's going to give you the most accuracy. So in a general sense, I would say I'd probably go to a machine. Mm. But, you know, it depends what I'm cutting. I'm probably more of a machine person just because I walk around with a pair of vernier calipers in my hand most of the time. <laughs> so do yeah. I. 
I like my vernier calipers. So do I. God, that my is three a... favourite tools are my 25mm wood chisel, yeah. which gets used for everything and not a lot of chiselling. You know, not proper chiselling. Yeah, so yeah, it does. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just got a beautiful weight to it. And I just, it's my, my hand just goes for that chisel. If I need a chisel, that'd be the one I'll go to. And I go, oh, that's going to be too big for that. I have to put it down and get another one. My little, my radio calipers. And I also love, I've got a little, very annoying American four inch adjustable square. So it hasn't got millimeters, but it's just a perfect size for everything. I've got smaller squares, I've got bigger squares, but this is the square that just my hand just goes to to pick up. I want to see if anything's square. And I do love, I do love my um, Festo ten ten router, little the small one. Do you? Could not live without that. Yeah, I love yeah. that router. I'm actually thinking about buying a set. Think you're buying a second one. Another one of the ten tens. I find yep. that particular model a little bit light on. Oh, we can only do small things. Yeah. I don't like the dust extraction on the next sizes up. Yeah. Well, I love the dust extraction because it's sort of all somehow inbuilt into it. But I was just thinking I should perhaps get a maybe the next size up and put that in the table router and then use the the ten ten for all my hand stuff. They're pretty expensive, hey. The large model, the 2200, I think yeah. it is, is a superb machine for table routing. Yeah, right. Absolutely gorgeous. And I use it in my hands. It's it's a beauty. But mm. if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't invest in a Festo router. I think I'd buy mm-hmm. a, yeah, a, a, the, the old Makita variable speed, not the current model, but the one prior yeah. to that. It's yeah. probably about 15 years old, but you can still get them secondhand. That's a really good all machine. Right. Okay. I think all that, those um, the Festo tools are beautifully designed, and they're sort of beautifully designed to work as a system. As a system, so I, yep. Yeah, when I first got the 1010, it sort of annoyed me, but as soon as I got the vacuum cleaner that yep. goes with it, yep. the whole thing made sense. Yep, and dust is the biggest pain in the butt yeah. when it comes to woodworking. Yeah, yeah. And the Festo, Festool systems have it sorted. Yeah, so true. Yeah, what about design and style? Do you have, you know, clear ideas on what your style is and what you like? Um, I'm really an, I'm an old, old modernist. I'm not an old, old modernist. I'm an old modernist. So I love all that. I love a lot of that early 20th century design. I love shaker furniture and I love a lot of Japanese design. I love the shaker furniture because it's practical and just beautifully simple. I love beautifully the Jap- proportioned Japanese. Beautifully proportioned. And I love a lot of the Japanese things because although it's quite decorated, the decoration is sort of incredibly integral to its function. So I love the way that a lot of those old Japanese tansu and chests and stair chests are just a delight to the eye. And mm-hmm. yeah, one of the first pieces of furniture I actually fell in love with was um, Miss Van der Rohe's Bruno chair, mm. which is one of those cantilever chairs, but not with the tube, but with mm. flat. I just mm. thought that was. I love that continuous line stuff. That sort of yeah, very simple things. What about decoration on the surfaces? Do you do that? Do you like it? Um, I probably don't because I don't. I like to put the decoration inside, so I often have decoration in bottom of drawers. Really? A little. Yeah, no, I do. Put it in there, yeah. so it's a surprise when you open the drawer. Yeah. What sort of decorative elements do you use? Uh, there's some maps and text and really? things like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where do you generate your text from? Uh, well, when I, I made a lot of work probably you know, 15 years ago about the early exploration of Tasmania. Mm. So I would 
was sort of studying old journals, so I would pull bits of text from journals and other people's writing. What about images? And... I, images, I don't like print images, but I often might use the CNC to do or yeah, use the CNC to do a map. Quite, I love a bit of a lover yeah. of maps. Where do you places. get your CNC from? Oh well, my partner bought a second-hand <laughs> one some time ago, so I just use his. <laughs> Can I ask you what the brand is? Oh, I don't know. It's very old. Is it? It still obviously no, I mean, I, works. Yeah, it still works, but I, I have to think. I mean, it's being there somewhere. I don't know what the answer is. No, that's okay. How many axes? Do you know what that is? Uh, it's just X, Y, Z, yeah. Yeah, three axes, yeah. 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 Is that enough? Uh, well, I don't use it for carving. Look, we would mainly use the router to make jigs. Yeah. And I do a bit of engraving into laminate or yeah. into veneer, not into veneer, but in solid timber. I would use it for engraving that. So mm. very rarely is it get used for the finished object. Yeah. So we'd make a jig and then we'd route it by hand. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, would, I would love to have a CNC machine. A really small one. And they should get one. one. They're great. Yeah, yeah a really they're great. small one that's really, really solid, not some rinky-dink hobby thing. I think yeah, I'd no, yes, you've used it all the time. Yesterday yep. I was making something. I thought, oh, I just need a, 12, a bit of MDF for a jig to do some planing I was doing. And I just, you know, I knew that was actually on the router. So I just went up, screwed a bit of MDF to the, we have a sort of waste board on there, mm. pressed the button, plugged in the vacuum cleaner, and it made the circle. And it took, you know, two minutes. Whereas if um, you'd actually, I could have, got a bit of MDF, screwed it to another bit of MDF, got the router out, you know, used a, a pattern thing. I could have done all that or, you know, you do the stuff where you put the paint. You know, you, you could you could do it without it, but it is really handy to have. Oh, that really in my, accurate stuff. In my dreams, I'm going to have a CNC router, a CNC machine Yeah, that you put a piece of raw material into Press the button and out pops the finished component. All done. Isn't that isn't that called called China? Hmm. Maybe. But yeah. I don't want to do that. I'd like to do it. I'd like to have all the components just popping out the end of the machine. And oh, then, and you just put them together. And then I just put them together. Yeah, I see. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I think you'd find that then you'd be doing what everybody else is doing and your clients wouldn't be seeing your hand in the piece. <laughs> do you reckon, how, how long do, do you reckon it would take me to get really bored of that? Oh, pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> pretty quick too. I think I'd probably last about three days and then I'd say, oh, no, where's that Where's that 25 mil chisel that I love? Where's my vernier calibers? Yeah. It's your vernier calibers. Are they dial or the old style? Oh, no, no. I use the old style. Oh, okay. Well, I must admit, I've struggled to read them, so I've got dial ones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, whatever yeah. works. I think the digital ones, we're going to just have Vernier Caliper discussion now. The digital ones, they're too accurate. You know, if you've got a reading that gives you to the second decimal place of millimetres, it's just like for woodwork. No, we don't want that. No. Well, you want to get the digital one is that you've always got to remember to turn them off. And replace the battery. Yeah. But the old ones, that is, work with, you know, they're not battery powered. Yeah. I've got digital ones as well. And sometimes I use them because they are more accurate if I'm really, you know, wanting to get to the nth degree. Yeah. But I just forget to turn them off. And then I go back to them and the yeah, battery's flat again. Annoying. So, yeah. it's not a nuisance. 
I have a digital angle reader, and that is another tool I use all the time. Mm, interesting, yeah, because we've got um, digital on the table saw. Mm, that'd be handy. And you're there, you know, tick, 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 tap, 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 trying yeah. to get it down to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly the way you use it. But there's one at Carbotech, the digital angle finder on the in Carbotech. Yeah. I think it's about fifty dollars. It might not even be that much. It might be thirty dollars. It's killer. It's awesome. Yeah. So there's another tool that probably would go in my favourite tools. Yeah, I table saw it just, you know, it's just got to wind the handle and it seems to work most of the time. Just do a few test cuts and get it it right if it's really important. But, you know, within half a degree is usually enough Mm. for things that I do. If you were asked by a student what tools I should invest in, would you say, oh, just get some hand tools and start making stuff? Or would you say, no, take out a loan, get some really good machines? I would say definitely get some machines. You know, the things, you know, buzzer thickness, table saw, probably where you start, drill press. And probably I would suggest they take out a loan and get those things or buy them secondhand if they can, which is sort of what we did. We bought a lot of secondhand stuff and then bought some new stuff as we needed it. Most of our tools are all secondhand. But really, if I was talking to someone who wanted to start out, I would suggest that they um, get themselves into a shared workspace if they can because the beauty with that is you've got someone to help you with advice. Mm. You've got someone to look at your work as it's going along and sort of go, yeah, I think you're right. That needs to be bigger. That needs to be smaller. Help you with the lifting. Got those shared tools so you learn how to look after them properly and then you can spend your money on your hand tools, you can share equipment. And then you know, after a couple of years, I find in those shared workspaces, most people sort of got enough experience. They've saved a bit of, or they've reinvested all their profits into equipment and they've actually got enough to get started somewhere else. Mm. So that would be my advice is actually try and either share with somebody else. That might not need to be a shared workspace, but if you know, two of you leaving art school or furniture school you know, set up a space together, you don't have to share the business, but just, be able to share some of the costs. Yeah. So have your own clients, yeah. Mm, that's what I did. Well, that's probably why you're still here and successful today. <laughs> I think there's a whole lot of other ingredients too, but that's when I started out, that's, yeah, I went to the jam factory from art school, yeah. which is in Adelaide, and yeah. it was a share workshop. Yeah. Sure, they're all over. So we've got one here in Hobart. I'm not sure what, if they've got one in Launceston, but yeah, yeah. You, you see them around the place. And the one in Hobart's called? Um, Dot. Designed Objects Tasmania, mm. and they're great because they also offer um, some scholarships. So they will let students they let they take people on for I think for a year, and they don't pay any rent. So it's an awesome way of getting started. And then the second year, I think they might have to pay rent. So they get you know that's a really fantastic opportunity for somebody. That is awesome. It is awesome. Is that yeah. is that because it's supported from government, or is that? Su- is it private? I think they do get some government support to do that springboard scholarship, they call it. Yeah. And they have furniture makers, woodworkers, ceramicists, and they have a jeweler up there at the moment. So anybody who needs sort of space, a studio yeah. space, yep. And they all, a dot, they also offer um, a membership where you can be a member and then pay to go in and use the machine. Mm. So if you're cunning, you know, and you're a bit organised, you can go there for a day, mm. do all your machining, and then go back to your garage and Mm. and you know, spend your money on clamps and get your work together there. You can never you have, can never have too many clamps. <laughs> That's right. 
And don't make anything bigger than your clamps. Yeah, make sure you can get it out your door. Yeah, and in your well. car. And in your car, do that. Although you could hire yeah. a truck, but when it comes out of the truck, make sure it can go into the client's house if it is going yeah. into the client's house. Yeah, yeah. make sure you get it out the workshop. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was talking to David McLaren just the other day. One of his early jobs uh, in New York was for some uh, built-in cupboards, and these cupboards had to go up a lift to the fifth story in, in Manhattan. And they yep. got to the lift entrance and they had to take everything apart and they rode on the top of the lift to get wow. the into, the, into the apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I felt for him because when you do that, the feeling of embarrassment and awkwardness is palpable. Yeah. Or you're carrying up a fire escape or something like oh that. Oh my god! Yeah, we have big. We have our doors open three meters in out of our workshop, and they're mm. like two meters tall, so they're quite big. Except mm. we've got a lot of stuff stacked in front of this three sort of folding doors, and we just come in that one, and a lot of stuff stacked in front of the other two. So if you've got a big thing and you haven't sort of thought about it, you may have to do a lot of work to get it out. Yeah, do you plan? Yeah. Can you name your top three influences? And these don't have to necessarily be design. It could be family, painters, musicians. Uh, look, I, th- I think I said before, I love the shaker and Japanese design and that early modernism and Bauhaus stuff. But also there's something about listening to Bach music, which I find really deeply satisfying in that sort of a very ordered sort of way it's written. It's like quite like that sometimes if I need to calm down and relax. Mm. It's a bit like design somehow. Oh, and I suppose the other really big influence on me is when I was doing some of my woodwork classes, the University of Tasmania had an American furniture maker called Christina Madsen in as a um, mm. lecturer, and she came to talk mm. to my woodwork class, which was out of the university, and showed pictures of furniture made by American woodworkers. Mm. And I looked at that her slide and thought, oh, I could do that. And so then I enrolled at the art school. So if it probably hadn't been for her coming to look at, to come to talk to our woodwork class, then I wouldn't have gone to uni. Well, good on you, Christina. Yeah, and she does some amazing stuff. Doesn't have a lot of stuff on the internet, but if you do ever see a piece of work, it's just Mm. exquisite. Yeah, I I, I know. Do clients have shortcomings? I think they're just like everyone else. Um, And so some. You know, I've already sort of we've covered this a bit, but genuine mm. clients are fine. It's just those people who perhaps aren't hundred they just really want to come and talk to you rather than actually commission something. Yeah, I think the communication that designers need to have and designers and makers need to have towards their clients, I think it helps if the client can also have a bit of communication skill back. So if they don't like it they can actually articulate that. Yeah. In a way yeah. that can be heard so that you both have something at the outcome which you're happy with. Yeah. If, I, I, yeah. I think I, sometimes I find clients don't actually know what they want. They want something. Yeah. And as a designer, I think sometimes it's your job perhaps yeah. not to design what they've asked you to design, but actually to burrow yeah. into the problem yeah. and come up with the answer. I agree mm. with that too. But you've got to be able to communicate that and the client's also got to be able to come on board too and articulate what it is 
that they're expecting. Yeah. If it's not yep. exactly what they're wanting, just maybe even what they expect. I think you're right. And I think there are, we just have to accept in life too, there's some people who will never get on, on with. And if you have that sixth sense when you first meet them, then don't I would try. suggest maybe yep. don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. yeah. Pass them on to somebody else. <laughs> Who you don't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, who <laughs> you think can help them? Help yeah, who you better think can help you them? Can. That's sorry. Yeah, yeah. Correct, correct answer. Yeah, yeah. How important do you think going overseas for Australian designers and makers is? I, I think it's probably less important than it used to be. In that now we can see anything all over the world on the internet, but mm. there is something about actually seeing other objects and in the flesh, and it is mm. always wonderful to talk to other designers and makers mm. elsewhere to discover that we've all got the same issues and same problems, and you're not alone, really. You're just all part of a big community. I think you can also see and feel things that you wouldn't have otherwise seen and felt. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. necessarily any museum, but you're walking down the street and it's like, oh, my God, look at that. Yeah, or you just see the way other people live. Yeah. I'm really curious whether or not there's an authentic Australian style. Yeah, look, I have thought about this. I don't know if there is. You know, I think all the things you could say, oh, yeah, you know, love the outdoors, make, do and mend. But those things are everywhere. So I don't know if there is. I would say no. What about you? I think there is, and I think it's Aboriginal. Okay. I think from, I don't know the right way to put this without sounding strange, but if you're not Aboriginal, you're probably going to do something that's a rehash of something else. Yep, I suspect you're probably right about that. And uh, if you're not Aboriginal, then you really, without permission, can't really tap into no. that style. Yeah. But um, when when Europeans did tap into that style, say in the 1950s, 1960s, there was a lot of appropriation of that the yep. original style. I don't know, actually, whether or not uh, the European Australian has an authentic style. I think uh, some of the Depression furniture was authentic. Yeah. The German settlers in here in South Australia had some mm -hmm. a genuine style that was pretty interesting. But looking to back towards Europe and, and bringing it into an Australian context with their materials and what have you. Yeah, I, mean, I think some of that depression sort of furniture, you could see that in other, in other places. I think you it's could not too. just Australian. Mm. Yeah. But I, um, I invite people listening just to have a think about what an Australian style could be or is and maybe try and develop one. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really interesting, um, really interesting topic to think about. And I haven't actually thought about it a lot, but I suspect no. it probably has something to do with the land. Something to do with the land. Mm. Which is probably why you said um, that you thought that perhaps there was an Aboriginal style that was authentically Australian, given the connection with country. Yeah, I'm certainly not an academic and um, I can't sort of, I can't relate to any studies in an academic, or I'm, I'm certainly not Aboriginal either, so I can't really talk to that. But maybe if somebody wants to get in touch, they can have a chat about it. That would be great. Yeah, but I'd like to think, I'd like to hope that somewhere, sometime, an Australian style could be developed that could be seen, like the Shaker style. I mean, okay, that, yeah. you know, that comes from a um, precursors and what have you, and an Australian style is going to definitely come from precursors, but it'd be nice 
to hope that in some way down the line there's an Australian style in a similar way that somebody could say, oh, there's some Danish modern furniture. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, you look at that Danish modern furniture and you can see sort of where that's come about in terms Mm. of... 100%. There's precursors to it. Yeah. But you look at it and you know where it comes from. You know that's where it is. I'd like to hope there's an Australian style that's going to come at some stage or if it has come and is present, if somebody can let me know, I'd appreciate it. Okay, everybody, let Adrian know. (laughs) Uh, what are the new challenges for you coming up? Well, I've just sort of taken over the care and maintenance of my parents' boat, so that's going to be a challenge for me. <laughs> I know. Is it on the water? It's on the water. It just needs a little bit of love and attention at the moment and um, just a question of working out how much money to spend and what's the best place to spend it. Yeah, is it made out of wood? It's wood. It's actually the boat itself is in reasonable condition, but I just have to get it, I think, re-rigged and um, new sails so we can actually take it out and enjoy it again. Yeah, for sure. Are you a sailor? I can sail, but I'm not, haven't, you know, I'm not really a skipper. No. So maybe you need a motor put in there. It's got, it's got a motor. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. It's just, um, you know, all that coming into the marina and the anchoring, all those important things. Mm. It's not been my responsibility in the, in the past. Do you have hobbies? Yeah, I love bushwalking, and Tasmania is a great place to walk, so I like to get out and do that. And also, um, sew a lot of my own clothes because I like things to fit perfectly and see exactly how I want them to be. See, (laughs) big circle, isn't it? Oh, I think that's fantastic. Yes, I'd like to sew more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a superpower outside of physiotherapy and woodworking? Well, I did think about this, and I think if you ask my partner, he'd say, I have an ability to fall asleep anywhere. <laughs> Does that superpower have a name? I think it's the ability to fall asleep any, anywhere. No, I don't know I'm, if it has a, a I'm name. I'm trying to no, think about, like... Um, yes, it possibly... Yes, I have to look into it. There might be a name for it. Yes, no, but if I'm, you know, working... Something. Yeah. <laughs> If I'm busy in the workshop and I don't finish till three o'clock, I just come into bed, lie down. He'll be awake, sort of insomnia, and I'll just come in and just fall asleep. He hates me for it. <laughs> but he does. If he's an insomniac, it just wouldn't be fair, would it? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not fair. And once once we went bushwalking and we didn't get back to where we needed to be before it got too dark to keep mm. going, and I was mm. exhausted. I said, "I'm going to have to sleep in a cave somewhere." So we found a cave and. I fell asleep and he sat up all night. Wow. I know. I woke up a bit, but I can sleep pretty well anywhere. I think that sleep is good for everything. Yeah. I love going to bed. Yeah. I I think that there is nothing except good that comes from sleep. Yeah, no, you have to get enough sleep. And that was my other hobby is lying on the couch. (laughs) Listening to bark. Yeah, sometimes I just, you know, just falling asleep on the couch. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, all the all the insomniacs out there will be super jealous. They will be super jealous. I'm going to get a name for my superpower because it is pretty awesome. <laughs> I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, we'll bottle it. We'll sell it. Yeah. If only. If only. A lot of people are very happy with my sleeping skills. When the apocalypse comes, will you have any useful skills? Well, I thought about this, and I think my top skill might be neck massage. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
<laughs> That's going to be so useful. Everyone's so going to be really stressed, aren't they? They will. And they'll all need I'll a neck say, massage. Give me a handful of berries, I'll give you a neck massage. <laughs> I think they'll be coming to you with broken legs. I'll do that as well. But yeah, you know. do that as well. A useful skill. How useful is art and craft to our society? I think that having beautiful and useful things around you uh, enriches your life. I mean, I just love looking at lovely things, and they yeah. just sort of calming, relaxing, and make you think. Yeah. Do you collect lovely things? Yeah, I do actually. I don't have a lot of lovely things. I've got a few little boxes and carved objects and stuff like that that I've collected here and around the world. Not that I've travelled a lot, but I've got a beautiful little um, miniature sort of carver bowl from Fiji, and it's just got the, the most glorious, simple design, and then it's just got this line carving, which is just exquisite. It's just a very simple design, but, yeah, I just love looking at it. It's very rest- restful. What's the best decision you ever made? Well, some years ago, my partner wanted to spend our money on a wide belt sander. Oh, so. He wanted me to pay for half this white belt. So that I actually want to spend the money on a, a better second-hand car. But he convinced me, and I have to say, I do love the white belt sander. And it probably was a better spend of the money. Well done. <laughs> Is your car still going, or did you have to retire that? No, we have. I think we've retired. The car that we had at the time has since been retired. We've got rid of that car, and we've now on the third car since then. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you did eventually get the better second-hand car. You but, know um, what? Yeah, that's right. He actually got both those. <laughs> yeah, can... we, well, we we both got what we wanted, but just yeah. one got precedence over one the other. Yeah. What's yeah. the hardest decision you ever made? I think um, when I finished my physio degree, I was had I offered a job in Melbourne, which is where I studied. And I love living in Melbourne. And this job was would have been really interesting, but I also got off another job in Hobart, which was a better job for a, a new grad. And in the, I thought about it long and hard. In the end, I came back to Hobart and so did that job, which in the long run has meant that I'm now doing physiotherapy in an area that I really love, which is the hand therapy section. Mm-hmm. So it has turned out correctly in the end. You never know, do you? But I think that was really hard to decide what to do at that point. And yeah. I went with the rational reason over my heart. So I think that was, you know, that was hard to decide what to do there. I can appreciate that living in a slightly more vibrant city, at least in a new city, and then going back to the same old would be pretty tricky. Yeah, it, well, and, you know, Hobart now is, is a fabulous place to live. You know, got everything easy to get back and forwards. I mean, I think I pay the same now to fly to Melbourne as I used to pay when I was a student in the 80s in dollar terms. You know, mm. it's just air travel is so much easier. So mm. you always more, you feel more connected. Mm. There's lots more things happening here. So it wouldn't have been a hard decision if making the same decision now. But when I was young, it did seem pretty tricky to decide what to do there. Yeah, Hobart's changed a lot in the last so much. little while. Yeah. Have you ever made a bad decision? Um, I think I take probably the bad decisions have been taken on projects that turned out to be way more complex than I anticipated. I don't know. Just everything turns out all right for me mostly. So that would be the only. Yeah, it all works out, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Look, it actually does. That's very true. But do you think that your feeling about that, that it 
will work out all right is is part of your makeup or is that something you've um, learnt over time? I think I have learnt to stress less about stuff, but I still, you know, get anxious about things. I probably learnt it. It doesn't seem to me that you get anxious over things to the extent where you just can't get out of bed in the morning or anything like that. Oh, no, no, I don't have that problem. Too too, too busy. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't have that sort of anxiety that a lot of young uh, a lot of other people do, and I'd be I feel very sorry for them that if you've got if you're struggling with that and trying to deal with it. But you know, mm. get lots of sleep, eat good food, don't drink too much, get plenty of exercise. I think um sleep when I have had issues like that, it's usually because I'm not getting enough sleep. Mm. Which even with my superpower of being able to fall asleep easy, <laughs> anywhere, anytime. Yeah. Anywhere, anytime, you know, really for me, less than sort of seven and a half hours on a regular basis is, is not enough. You know, I can mm. get by quite happily on six hours for, you know, a week or two, but mm. eventually it catches up on you. Yeah. Yeah, I think seven and a half hours would be a minimum. Yeah, that's my minimum. Yeah. A natural fact, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a, talk about sleep again, but when I am doing a big project and you are having to have late nights and early mornings, I've worked out for myself that I need to sleep in one and a half hour cycles. Really? So I sort of, yeah, if I can fall asleep, I've got these one and a half hour cycles. And if you wake up after three hours or after four and a half hours, you don't really feel like shit. You just feel a bit tired, but you don't feel terrible. Mm. Whereas you sort of get that timing wrong, then it, it's worse for me. So I sort mm. of think, oh, yeah, three o'clock now, if I get into bed in half an hour's time, go four and a half, I can get up at this time and I'll put my alarm on for that particular time. One and a half hour sleep cycles is physiologically known, isn't it, I think? I think I think it is. And I just have found, for me, that works really well. But of course, if you're an insomniac and you can't just fall asleep when you first lie down, you'll be in trouble, won't you? Mm, I think the thing about insomniacs is that I'm not asleep and I should be. Yeah. And yeah. that's a problem. When that happens, the problem is the problem. If you're awake and you're lying down and you're not asleep, who cares? Whatever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let it go. But if you worry about it, you'll definitely be awake. Yeah. If, I, if, if for some reason I can't sleep, I just put my ear, phones in my ears and listen to a podcast and I'm asleep within 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it can take me two weeks to hear a whole podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wake up an hour and a half later and it's it's, it's the over. Point is over. It's gone. Yeah. Pull it out of your ears and then, you know, mm. I've got it recorded so I can hear it the next day. I'll get the next 30 seconds. <laughs> if you could go back and give advice to a young Linda, what would it be and do you think you'd listen? I think I'd probably say just don't worry about it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And not worrying about it doesn't mean don't work hard, don't be passionate. Yeah. It just means put a perspective around it. I remember when I was a young physio, I met a man who had lost his house twice to bushfire. And I went to New York. I was terrible. And I said, how did you cope with that? And he said, well, I learned. He said, you should only worry about things you can change. Mm. And that would probably be the advice I would give myself. Only worry about the things you can change. Do you reckon you'd listen? Well, I listened to him. <laughs> so, yes, I did. It's clear, isn't it? Yeah. And it was, um, at the time, for me, that was actually quite a comforting thing to know. The lesson was learnt when you needed to learn it. What advice would you give to somebody just starting out in a creative business? Look, I would say it is going to be hard, and and we've both talked about that. 
But I think if you're committed, you can do it. But I would also suggest that people think about having some other skills, which is good to fall back on. And even young people now, if they ask me, I say, take up another career, you know, do teaching or something that you can uh, learn the skills you're interested in in terms of woodwork, but then have that ability to work as a teacher and then you can still do your woodworking as a hobby and then maybe it becomes um, a job later. But I think it is pretty hard to make ends meet if you're just trying to do the woodwork all the time for the furniture making. So it's I think a, having another set of skills is, is really important. It's a real dilemma though, I think. If you're passionate about something to the extent where you just really don't want to do anything else and then you take up a day job, you can come home from that day job and you can be tired and not have yeah. the energy to devote to the to the avenues that make you really happy. And um, uh, yeah, go on. I, was say, I agree with that entirely because when I was teaching, I couldn't make any furniture and mm. I took up jewellery instead as, as a sort of way of making things because I could do it over a weekend, I could make mm. a piece. So for me, it's better to have something that's entirely different, but I know other people who actually teach and make because at the end of your in, – in the end, if you're a teacher, for example, you're working you know, 40 weeks a year, so there are – still 12 weeks to get things done in. Mm. And there's lots of you know, work part-time, that sort of thing. But it may be that you choose to get your skills in an entirely different area, which might be accountancy or something like that. I think it would be worth it, in addition to that, to get skills in work that pays very, very well and is also yep. very flexible so yep. that instead of working in hospitality where you're working for nothing, you've just got to work all the time to even try and make ends meet, you're actually earning a lot in a short space of time. Yeah. So, if you know, to go down that road. Yeah. So as I say, it's a skill set, not just a job. If you could retire tomorrow, what would be the top three things you'd do? I think I'd like to travel more. I'd probably like to get out in the bush more and maybe lie on the couch more. <laughs> you know what you need to do? Take your couch to Europe, go yeah. into the forest, put your couch yeah, in the forest down. and lie down. Yeah. I do love going walking and it's amazing how great it is at clearing your head and quite often I've been sitting in the workshop trying to nut out how to make something and you know, go round and round in circles and mm. get in the car, drive off, get, in, get my pack on, put my gators on, head off and 100 metres up the track, I you know what it. the answer is. Yeah. I, just yeah. want to go, I just want to go home then, but <laughs> I push on up. You might get two answers. You might get an even yeah, better so I, answer. Yeah, I do always take when I'm bushwalking a little notebook and a pencil so I can, yeah. you know, jot down. I do just in case that thing comes and I need to write it down. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Linda, this conversation has been so fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure. How it can, was nice chatting. Yeah, it was great. How can people get in touch with you? They can email me or they can Instagram me, Instagram Messenger, which I've just discovered recently. So my Instagram handle is at Linda's underscore things. And email? Yeah, linda.fredhaim at optusnet.com.au. And Fredhaim is spelled F-R-E-D-H-E-I-M. Awesome. I have a very out-of-date website, so that's got all those details on it as well. Have you got any plans to update your website? Oh, yeah, one day. When I get sick of lying on the couch. <laughs> you can do it remotely from the couch. Uh, really, I have moved into the 21st century, I think, and I tend to put all my current projects on Instagram. 
Yeah, so, yeah. Do you think it's really, really important to do Instagram and social media things? Uh, I love Instagram and mm. I do think it is important and I have got a few leads off it, but I've also got a few tire kickers as well. So mm-hmm. it's like everything. But I like uh, – the thing I love about Instagram is I love watching what all my Instagram friends are up to. Yeah. I have a policy of not liking children and pets and food, but um, <laughs> if you put up pictures of your work, I will – Usually like it if I if I like it yeah but I love to see where people are travelling and things like that yeah nice and quick and easy not too many ads on it no there's not and you can flick past those ads pretty quickly no I think that I think Instagram's great and uh, a lot of people I know do sort of sell work off Instagram yeah if you've got sort of things and I have as I say got a few leads on some stuff but in the end they haven't come to anything they will they will I just have to Instagram more. You have to make more. <laughs> what are you going to do, Instagram or make? Hmm. Uh, I think I might be making. Yeah, yeah, ditto that. Yeah. I mean, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for chatting. I'll put all your information up on the podcast website and um, we'll speak soon, I hope. Yep, great. See you later. See ya. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks, Linda. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me via make at designermakerrevolution.com. Subscribe and share this show with your friends and colleagues. Thanks. See you next time. Bye.